I'm sure that everyone here can identify many moments in their life that they have been left in desperate need of comforting or reassurance. Whether it was a minor roadblock in your plans or a life-changing tragedy. Whether it was something that happened decades ago or as recent as this last week. All of us desire assurance and confidence, especially when life is difficult and full of pain. If you're here this morning and you consider yourself a Christian, I'm sure you would agree that the ultimate solution, of course, is God himself. The classic Sunday school answer, Jesus, is an appropriate response to inquiries of a true and lasting source of assurance. But what if you were to try and comfort someone who is deep in the midst of suffering and hurt? What would you say to them to bring them comfort? What would you do to relieve their anxieties and say to ease their burdens? Our culture has many responses, and most are utterly unsatisfying. Everything happens for a reason. It will all work out in the end. You have to go through a storm to get to a rainbow. The list goes on. And even within the church, statements like God is in control or God has a plan, while theologically true, often become trite and unconvincing when we are facing hardship. And so what then should we do? Well, the passage we're going to look at this morning provides us with an answer. The best way to comfort the hurting is to reintroduce them to who Yahweh really is. And so, friends, what we really need is a bigger and more grand view of our Lord. When we bask in the beauty and majesty of the character of the triune God, we will find comfort amidst our pain. And thankfully, Isaiah 40, the text we'll be in this morning, has a lot to say about this. One of my professors in seminary, he has said that this is probably the clearest single passage in the entire Bible on God's character. I think he's right about that. And so if you haven't already, please open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 40. Um, as a quick aside, just because a few people have asked in, in the past weeks, the translation I'm preaching out of is the Christian Standard Bible, the CSB. Um, every time it says Lord, though, in, in all caps, I pronounce it as Yahweh. It's the covenant name that God revealed in Exodus 3. Um, you could say a lot more about that if you want to talk more about that. Come talk to me after the service. Um, and so, a little bit of a recap. As we's, we've gone throughout our series in Isaiah, we've um, seen that the book can be divided into two big chunks, chapters 1 through 39, and then chapters 40 through 66. And so, we have finally reached that middle point. We have finished 1 through 39, and we move forward into this next uh, major section. Um, as we saw last week, at the end of chapter 39, King Hezekiah had experienced deliverance as he humbled himself and trusted in the Lord, faced the threat of this Assyrian nation, and afterwards, he walked away from that. He tried to put his hope in uh, Babylon, and when Isaiah heard, speaking for God, he says, hear the word of Yahweh of armies. Look, the days are coming when everything in your palace and all, of your, uh, all that your predecessors, predecessors have stored up until today will be carried off to Babylon. Nothing will be left, says Yahweh. And so Isaiah declares that you are going to be taken away by Babylon, and 
know that he was right. Second Kings 24 through 25 show over 100 years later, Babylon turned against Jerusalem. They destroyed the city and its temple. They carried away Israel into exile in Babylon. And so as we move into chapter 40, we now cross this significant boundary in the book of Isaiah. We move into this second section, and a major shift has occurred. It seems now suddenly that the Babylonian victory that was prophesied in 39 is now fully presupposed or assumed. In other words, the perspective of the author of these chapters in the second half of the book is someone living after this exile. He's someone living during the period described in the book of Ezra Nehemiah, the historical prophet Isaiah. He died 150 years before any of that happened. And so, what, what's going on here? It, it becomes very clear as we get into chapters 40 through 66, and, and Isaiah, the prophet himself, um, is not mentioned. There's no stories or autobiographies or narratives like there were in the first half. And so, who is this voice speaking? Um, whose voice are we hearing in these chapters? One of my professors Ray Lubeck, he has this quote that he repeats often in class. He says, to every complex problem, there's a simple solution, and it's wrong. Uh, this is a very complex question. Uh, maybe you're like, I, you know, why does it matter? This is a complex question, and so the, the solution is not simple. Um, I'm going to try and frame this as simply as I can, paint with super broad strokes as we, we move into this next half of the book. And so who, who is this voice speaking? It appears to be after the exile, and yet Isaiah should be dead. Who, who, who's speaking? One solution is to take these chapters as composed by Isaiah before he died. Um, some people would argue that he's been prophetically transported nearly 200 years into the future in order to speak to later generations as if the exile had already passed. He records these prophecies along with those that he had given and seen fulfilled in his own lifetime. That's a possibility. Another option would be, on the other end of the spectrum, to simply deny that any sort of predictive prophecy is possible. You just conclude that, well, Isaiah must have been written by a number of different authors in different historical locations. This uh, historical Isaiah couldn't have written this. Both those answers are, are a bit simple, I think. Um, a third possibility that we might suggest from the text of Isaiah itself is found back in chapters 8 and 29 and 30, where we're told that after Isaiah was rejected by Israel's leaders, he wrote and sealed up in a scroll his message of both judgment and salvation. He passed it on to his disciples, 8.16, as a witness for days to come, 30 verse 8. And so he eventually died waiting for God to fulfill and vindicate these words Chapters 1 through 39 are designed then to show us that his predictions of judgment and hope in his own day were fulfilled in the Babylonian exile, his, his uh, predictions of judgment especially, and so he was a true prophet. It proves him to be a true prophet. And so after the exile's over, Isaiah's disciples, who had long treasured his words, they opened up this sealed scroll. They began developing his message about the future hope of God's salvation. And so, according to this view, the book of Isaiah consists of both the original collection of Isaiah's words, as well as the work of his later disciples who, used, who, who God used to extend 
Isaiah's message of hope to future generations. They're operating under the guidance of the Holy Spirit who's leading them along. These later prophets put together and edited Isaiah's work um, in such a way that they stayed true to his original message. It's authentically his, and so we can rightfully say that it's the word of Isaiah. Um, an analogy that I think of, is, I'm a big J.R. Tolkien fan, and he died and yet had all these unpublished writings. He had just written so much. And so his son um, continued to edit and collect and gather all the manuscripts and put them together and see if there was anything that was almost complete. And he would put them all together and you know, fill in a couple gaps, smooth out the edges, and publish these books. Uh, there was just one published last year by Tolkien. And it says on the front cover, the author is, is Tolkien, J.R.R. Tolkien, not his son, Christopher. And so is it true? Is it his work, even though he didn't finish it? And so it's, maybe that's helpful, maybe that's not. But that, that we have this, uh, this, this word of Isaiah that has long been uh, meditated on, and it is the word of Isaiah. And yet even though Isaiah is not present in the same way in 40 through 66 as he was in the first half of the book, um, the focus is, is not on the, the historical Isaiah being present. It's on whose word it really is. It's the word of God. It's not, not about the word of Isaiah. It's the word of God. And so, um, again, this is, it's not a simple issue. Um, much more could be said here. Uh, this is a, a topic that um, hundreds and hundreds of books have been written about. And, again, maybe you're just bored and don't care. That's, that's okay. I geek out about this stuff. Um, there's some more information in, in one of the packets, the handouts that we had at the beginning of the series on uh, reading the prophetic books, and if you want to talk about some of that after the service, I'd love to as well. Um, it's also online under the resources tab. Um, so anyway, all right, we move into chapter 40 through, 60, uh, through 66, and we see now, um, regardless of what view you take on, on whose voice this is and how, how this is happening, that the promises that we saw in the first half of the book are starting to be fulfilled. They're starting to be realized. Back in chapter 6, Yahweh made his intentions very clear. He said he was going to bring judgment upon Jerusalem for their sin and rebellion. But he was going to do so in order to purify the true righteous remnant and bring forth the holy seed, chapter 6, verse 13, and this kingdom ruled by the Messiah that would be over all the nations. And so this is the hope that's then explored in the rest of the book. As we move into chapter 40, the sin and failures of earlier chapters have not been abandoned. At this critical moment, though, Yahweh reorients Isaiah's ministry towards comforting the burning stump of Israel and Judah. Despite all they had done to turn away from Yahweh, they remain his people. He will help them just as he always has. And so Isaiah offers hope in the truthfulness and faithfulness of Yahweh's revealed word, we'll see in verses 1 through 8, it's hope and truthfulness and faithfulness in uh, the coming of Yahweh to rescue his people. There's hope in his sovereign power in verses 12 through 31. And all of these are not new themes. They now shape Isaiah's writings in some different ways in this new setting as he attempts to help Israel and Judah through continued hard times, hard trials. And as the eternal prophetic word of the Lord, this text speaks an abiding word to us as God's people today. 
And so here, here is that big idea of Isaiah 40, our truth statement for today. Yahweh alone is the creator and sovereign ruler of the universe. He can be trusted to act according to his word and to provide salvation for his people. Yahweh alone is the creator and sovereign ruler of the universe. He can be trusted to act according to his word and to provide salvation for his people. So you'll notice there that there's kind of these two big ideas and, and there are these two major, uh, major lines running through chapter 40 that I, I've tried to encapsulate there that, that one, God is the sole ruler of the universe and two, he can be trusted to deliver. Another way to frame this is by considering what are, are these, these two uh, pervading questions of Isaiah 40. One, does God want to save us and two, can God save us? See in verses 1 through 11, this first unit uh, of the chapter, that God does want to save us and that he can be trusted to do so. Comfort, comfort, my people, says your God. The Lord announces comfort, relief from a bad situation, relief from their trials, relief from their desperation. He offers consolation and compassion and hope. In verses 1 and following, it becomes a little confusing, though. There's a bunch of different voices. You have the voice of God. You have these things that he's telling other people to say. Then you have these other voices. And so there's a lot of speaking in this text. Comfort, comfort, my people. Who's he talking to? Here, in this context, there's several things to notice. One, the context, there's, there's several things to notice. One, um, there's a lot of links to Isaiah chapter 6, the, uh, the passage about Isaiah's commission and his vision in the throne room where you have the seraphim calling out to one another. There's this commissioning, this uh, going, uh, this sending, going on this mission, and here it's speaking tenderly to Jerusalem, announcing to her these things. And there's other um, things here that, that are very similar to passages we find in other places in the Old Testament, like 1 Kings 22, Job 1 through 2, Zechariah 1 and 3, that clue us into this conversation that is not happening between humans. This conversation is happening in the heavens among Yahweh and these heavenly beings who surround him in his throne room, like the angels in chapter 6. And so he says, comfort, comfort, my people. He's, he's commanding them to go and provide comfort. They're to do so by speaking tenderly to Jerusalem and announcing to her. These others in this throne room, in this divine council, are to commission these prophets to speak to God's people and to announce to her what God is now doing. Her time of hard service is over. Her iniquity has been pardoned. She has received from Yahweh's hand double for all her sins. And so as God commissions this council to send out these messengers, they're going to proclaim a, a message of forgiveness and comfort. The reference to double for all her sins is not saying that uh, 
God is punishing Israel more than they deserved. It, it means it's sufficient. It's not indicative of God being just, unjust in any way. He's giving them what they deserve. He's done that. And so now her time of hard service is over. And now we are going to see in verses 3 and following, and really the rest of the book, that there is this new phase coming. One way you could think about the entire book of Isaiah is chapters 1 through 39 are the old things or the former things or the past things, and 40 through 66 are the new things. They're the things that God is going to be doing in fulfillment after he has judged and purified. Now he is going to save, and this new phase of redemption is inaugurated as one of these beings is, is commissioned to cry out, prepare the way of Yahweh in the wilderness, make a straight highway for our God in the desert. There's this messenger sent out with an announcement. Yahweh is creating a path back to Zion to set up his kingdom for all nations. If you remember, um, just a couple weeks ago now, there was another passage in Isaiah that mentioned this highway in chapter 35. We've seen this language throughout the book in, in chapter 11 as well. In chapter 19, this highway imagery is already well established. God, after he judges his people, is going to restore them, bring them back on these highways to his dwelling place. They're going to come from Babylon, from Egypt, from all over the world. They're going to be brought in by this messianic king. And in the new phase, the Lord is bringing his people home. He's bringing them to him. But this highway is not just for them now. It is for God God is coming to travel upon this road. He's coming to save his people. This desert motif, it, it is uh, calling back to the exodus from Egypt. There's this second exodus idea where God, in this mighty act of deliverance, is going to bring his people back to dwell with him. He's going to drastically alter anything in its way. He's going to do whatever it takes. All the hills are going to be leveled, the mountains um, leveled, the valleys lifted up in order to bring these people back to him. And verse 5, what's going to happen is the glory of Yahweh will appear and all humanity together will see it. God's glory, we've seen in Isaiah, it shelters his people in Zion chapter 4, fills the earth and transforms the desert in chapter 35, and now it's transforming his people his glory is his power, presence, and reputation. Creator, sustainer, redeemer, judge, his glory displays his righteousness, his wisdom, his faithfulness, his kindness, his grace to those who trust in him. And all humanity is going to see it. Just as he had initially promised to Abraham, you're going to be a blessing to all nations through Abraham, blessing to the whole world, now God is going to show his glory to all people. And in verse 6, we get another voice, a prophetic messenger again, who is summoned to call out. There's some doubt, though, in his response. He doubts his message. What, what do I cry out? He's then reaffirmed in 
God's trustworthiness. And so as he uh, is questioning what to cry out, all humanity is grass. Its goodness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flowers fade when the breath of the Lord blows on them. Indeed, the people are grass. What am I supposed to cry out? He wonders. These people, they don't trust your word. They don't believe your word. They just continue to rebel against it. They are judged by the breath of Yahweh or the spirit of Yahweh, um, which we've seen before in Isaiah, is this instrument of judgment. So how, how am I going to communicate to them? What, what worth is it to continue communicating this message? And he's reaffirmed in verse 8. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God remains forever. God's word isn't subject to human weakness. Though humanity is frail, though they fade and wither and just blow away, the word of the Lord remains forever. And so, verse 9 then, in light of this, in light of the fact that God's word remains, he calls a a messenger to announce the good news of Yahweh's return to Zion. Zion, herald of good news, go up on a high mountain. Jerusalem, raise your voice loudly. Raise it, don't be afraid. Say to the cities of Judah, here is your God. Behold your God. Yahweh comes with strength. His power establishes his rule. His wages are with him. His reward accompanies him. He protects his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them in the fold of his garments. He gently leads those that are nursing. Yahweh is coming to save his people. We've seen this again. Isaiah 35, Yahweh is coming after this period of judgment in chapter 34. He's going to come and he's going to bring with him strength and recompense. Now he's coming. He's bringing reward. He's bringing uh, reward to his people. He's coming to dwell with them, and he's returning to Zion. He's bringing justice. He's bringing care for the helpless. I love verse 11. He protects his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms. He carries them in the fold of his garment against his chest. He gently leads those that are nursing. This is a tender, caring Father, this is a God who loves his people. This is so beautiful. This is good news. It says it in verse 9. Zion, herald of good news. This is the word that then is gospel in the New Testament. This is good news. This is the good news. I get so excited about this, and I'll just, just rant for a moment. If you, uh, any of the men in the men's Bible study know that I'm just always pounding in, you know, the Old Testament is so important. The Old Testament is, is, is so awesome. We need to, you know, study the Old Testament. I, I was getting my hair cut a couple weeks ago, and the, the woman cutting my hair, uh, Lisa, bless her soul, um, she asked. She she knows that I go to seminary, that I uh, that I preach here, that I um, uh, I'm a part of church, and so she was asking me what I was doing this summer, and I told her I was in this summer class. It was an Old Testament seminar, and she said, "Oh yeah, I don't really like the Old Testament. You know, it's kind of boring. You know, it's uh, just dark and and not a lot of grace and compassion in there." And you know, I, I just like the New Testament. And uh, I bit my tongue. You know, she was cutting my hair. I didn't want her to, you know, close it off. But, but, you know, I'm thinking, like, what? 
Are you kidding me? Like, read this. This is so incredible. This is gospel. This is beautiful. I I mentioned at the beginning, my my professor says that, you know, I I don't think there's another passage in the Bible that so clearly displays the character of of God. I don't think there is. I don't think there is in the New Testament. Find a passage that is, is so rich in all that it tells us about the Lord. This is, if you didn't read this uh, before this week, go home, read this passage, read it all week, meditate on it. It is such good news. The Old Testament is, is, is good news. It contains the gospel. Um, that's why we've, we've titled the series, The Gospel According to Isaiah. All right, off my soapbox. Moving forward into verses 12 and following, we reach the second unit of this passage, verses 12 through 31, and moving back to that other question of, of, of can God save, we see that yes, he can indeed save us. Not only does he want to, he can, because he's the sole creator and redeemer and ruler of the universe. The prophet's now going to mount an argument that God as sovereign creator and ruler is not only able, but he's willing to come to the aid of his despairing people who trust in him. Yahweh alone can promise and restore hope as the creator and ruler of the world. He has the incomparable power to save. The nations and their rulers are nothing. And so we get this string of questions, uh, these rhetorical um, jabs. If you look at 12 and uh, 13 and 14, who is measured, who is gathered, who is directed, who counseled, who did he consult, who gave him understanding, who taught him? These rhetorical questions, I'll expect the answer, no one. There is no answer that you can give that's legitimate. The intended answer in each case is there's no one else. No one else could possibly work as creator of the universe, as the one who measured the waters, who marked off the heavens. No one can gather the dust of the earth in a measure, who can weigh the mountains on a balance. No one directs him or gives him ideas. He is the Lord of history. We saw this already in Isaiah, uh, that many, many nations will make plans. They will plot and yet their plotting is in vain, for the Lord has a plan, and the Lord's plan trumps any other plan. No one gives him counsel. No one gives him plans. He plans it. He doesn't consult anyone. Who gave him understanding? Who taught him the path of justice? Who taught him knowledge? Who showed him the way of understanding? It's silly, almost, these questions. They're, they're rhetorical, and yet they're filled with this irony, and you just feel these jabs of this ironic rhetoric as the the prophet just pounds in how incomparable, how amazing and transcendent the Lord is. He's omnipotent in his infinite wisdom. There's no equal. He is vast in his counsel and his plan. Paul quotes this verse in Romans 11, and he, I think, has a fitting response Oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments, how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that he should be repaid? For from him and to him and through him are all things. And so to him be the glory forever. Amen. 
In verses 15, we see the implications of the fact that the Lord is the sole ruler, that he's the creator and sovereign. That means the nations are a drop in the bucket. They're like dust on the scales. They amount to absolutely nothing. They can lay no claim to a share in God's power. They're judged as nothingness or emptiness in comparison to God. The prophet so boldly announces that they have no chance when it comes to standing against the Lord, and we've seen this already. The Lord uses nations. He raises them up, and he brings them down. He uses them for his plans, and then they are judged for their own sinfulness. Verse 18 asks another question. With whom will you compare God? What likeness will you set up for comparison with him? There's an important point being made here. The utter incomparability of God lies at the foundation of Scripture's stance against idolatry. Any attempt to represent the Lord by uh, an image is rejected in light of the fact that He alone is the true God of all. What pales in comparison are these laughable wooden or metal images that they, they are so insecure and incompetent that they must be secured unless they stand over, uh, unless they fall over. They must be held up by humans or else they're going to fall. In verse 20, instead of offering to God the fruit of his own created bounty and generosity, there's a person who takes the best of creation and fashions an idol out of it using special human skill and ingenuity. And these questions, they just poke again, with sarcasm at how foolish this is, that someone would, would do this. In verse 21, we get another question. Did you not, do you not know? Have you not heard? Israel has known. They have heard. They have been told. They know that God created the world from the foundations of the earth, from the beginning. And yet, it's as if they've forgotten this. They haven't lived it out. They, as we'll see in a few verses, have doubted his control and his willingness to save them. But to understand the way that God created the world by doing it from the beginning, uh, considering the foundations of the earth, to understand that is to know that no ruler can, uh, can claim identity with Yahweh. He is in a league of his own. And so in this final set of verses and uh, before the, the, last, um, the, the last four, we, we have his uh, enthronement above the earth, his power to stretch out the heavens. He spreads them out. He reduces princes to nothing. It's made clear that he, again, is the one who is in control calling back to the imagery of humanity being like grass or flowers that fade. These human rulers in verse 23 are brought to nothing. They're barely planted, barely sown. Their stem hardly takes root. He blows on them and they wither away. It's like he puts even very little effort in and they still crumble beneath him. So to whom will you compare me? Or who is my equal, asks the Holy One. Even just that inclu the inclusion, the Holy One is telling. Who will you compare to the Holy One? There is no comparison. 
There's nothing that you can bring that will even stand close to the Holy One of Israel. He brings out the stars by number. He calls them by name. This emphasis on his total grasp of every star in the sky, not one missing, it anticipates this concern that Israel has that somehow God has disregarded or forgotten his people. Now, he knows every single star. Do you think he's forgotten you? And so in verse 27, it reaches this hinge, and we have built up to this point where who is he saying all of this against? Who is he arguing against? It's Jacob. It's Israel. They are saying that my way is hidden from Yahweh. My claim is ignored by God. Now that we've moved into chapter 40, and we have seen that we're in this setting of the exile to Babylon being realized, maybe we can understand how they might think, well, God is not caring for us. He's not with us. He has forgotten us. They're questioning his justice and his promises. And so in response to questions, do you not know? Have you not heard? Again, these things that they should know, that they should be aware of, that they've forgotten. Yahweh is the everlasting God, the creator of the whole earth. He never becomes faint or weary. There's no limit to his understanding. He never becomes faint or weary. Those words become important. Now we're going to see that they contrast with humans who do become faint and weary. The one who doesn't become faint and weary, he loves his people who do. And so, though they're not talking about, uh, they're talking about God, not to him, the prophet will affirm here that, that God, even in their distress, and they're not turning to him, he still cares for them. He is focused on their redemption. He promises to save those who trust in him. That's the, the key phrase in verse 31, those who trust in Yahweh. What does that mean? Well, in Isaiah, we've already seen this concept of trusting. In 7.9, it said, if you're not firm in your faith, you will not be firm at all. Isaiah in chapter 8 says, I will wait on the Lord. That word, uh, word here, same word. I will wait, I will trust, I will hope in the Lord. And then in a few other places throughout chapters 25 to 32, we saw others who are waiting, who are hoping in the Lord. Those people, those people who hope actively on the presence of God and yearn passionately for his intervention will not faint. They will not perish. They will renew their strength, mount up with wings, and even run. Again, note the contrast. God does not become faint or weary, but those who are faint, he gives strength. Those who are powerless, he strengthens. Youths may become faint and weary. Even these, these young people who should be in their prime, they still get tired and weary. They stumble and fall. But those who trust in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not become weary. They will walk and not faint. What a beautiful picture. This verse is, is, is quoted a lot, and, and it is so powerful, especially in the context of what we've seen in Isaiah, in God's commitment to his people that is so radical despite their 
rebellion, their sinfulness. Although the flower is faded and the grass withered through God's judgment, God comes with power to save. He will gently gather his dispersed and devastated people in a way that he has never done before. In Isaiah 40, it should be strikingly clear that at this very moment of despair and distress, what is called to the forefront, spoken to the heart, is just how precious, how irreplaceable and life-giving is God's Word. In this, word, uh, in this passage, Yahweh's Word enlivens even the heavenly voices themselves. Indeed, here in Isaiah, we see that what makes Israel different and capable of hope is that they possess this special revelation. They, sp- they uh, possess this Word from God. This is spoken to all who will hear His Word, though. All will see the glory of God. All who hope in the Lord will be saved. And so the question for us, the church today, you and I, as we, we hear and hear God speaking to us through the Scriptures, is whether we, we value the privilege of being in possession of God's Word at all. In chapter 40, the appeal is in the strongest possible terms. Listen and see and know again. Anchor your life in the promises and purposes that he has spoken. Understand yourself in the word according to God's word. Understand yourself in the world, rather, according to God's word. God's word does not require your assent to remain true and abiding. It will always eternally abide. Often uh, in Responding to the voice of the Old Testament, we wrongly envision this gap between ourselves and the application of its teachings, but God, by his word in Isaiah, demands that we see him rightly as incomparable in his glory. He is jealous for his people, those for whom he came to redeem from the desert. Today, in the place of physical idol gods to worship, we, we worship many other things, and yet God in his word, calls us back to the point earlier uh, that I've made about how he alone is worthy of any worship. And so the challenge is to let God's word have its say about false gods, about the true God's jealousy, about the danger of worshiping other gods. We might think we're safe because we don't bow down to these wooden, golden idols, and yet we are just as much in danger of worshiping other gods. And so we must hear the voice of Isaiah about the one true God, and we must follow it where it leads. Finally, it's difficult, but I think essential to learn how to rightly assess our weariness and exhaustion in the walk of faith. Sometimes uh, these things are directly responsible for our inability to hear God and for misunderstanding how God is actively at work. God's word, particularly in the Old Testament, records the cries of his people, honest and anguished and bold. It reports that God's people set their outrage and complaint before him as the one who is the source both of anguish and of hope. It displays that God answers on those terms, yet with his divine freedom and wisdom. And so as we deal on those same terms with 
the Holy One of Israel, whose faithfulness has been displayed before all the world in the raising of Christ, there can be no place for constant discouragement, for all has been seen and lived and redeemed in the Son of God to the glory of the Father. This means we know where our hope lies eternally and securely. Today, we all need to hear the tender, comforting voice of our God, Yahweh. We all need the strength of the everlasting God, the creator, the one who promises to come to his people, whose word endures forever, who heralds good news to the hurting ones, and whose strength is present for those who wait for him. Zion, herald of good news, go up on a mountain. Jerusalem, herald of good news, raise your voice loudly. Raise it, do not be afraid. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. The Lord Yahweh comes with strength and his power establishes his rule. His wages are with him. His reward accompanies him. He protects his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms. He carries them in the fold of his garment. He gently leads those that are nursing. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Yahweh is the everlasting God, the creator of the whole earth. He never becomes faint or weary. There is no limit to his understanding. He gives strength to the faint and strengthens the powerless. Youths may become faint and weary, and young men stumble and fall, but those who trust in Yahweh will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not become weary. They will walk and not faint. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God remains forever. Yahweh alone is the creator and sovereign ruler of the universe. He can be trusted to act according to his word and to provide salvation for his people. And so, brothers and sisters, behold your God. Behold your God. Would you pray with me? Father, we come before you and admit that we do not fathom how great and how grand and how majestic you are. We thank you for your word, which provides us a glimpse of that, which reveals to us in ways that we would not otherwise know that you love us, that you care for us, that you want to save us, that you will save us. You have shown us in your word in this text today how powerful you are, how you alone are in control of all. Lord, would you use this text to comfort us? Would you comfort us, your people? Would it be like a cold drink on the throat of someone who has just been parched for so long? Would your word flow through us and refresh us and renew us as you renew our strength, as you grant us grace and kindness, and as you conform us to the image of Christ. We pray all of this in the name of our Savior. Amen.